Good morning, everyone. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church today. Really glad to see you just today. Just today, yeah. Just today. It's a 24-hour expiration date. The story is told of the defiant child who was behaving badly. Finally, the exasperated mother sets the child down on a chair in timeout against the wall, and after a little while returns, asking the question if her son had learned his lesson. To which the still rebellious and fuming child said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. And I know, I know, it's old, it's a worn illustration, you've heard it before, but the reason why it still gets a chuckle is because it is ultimately true of much of our behavior. Is that while on the outside we may be forced to comply, while on the outside we may exhibit behavior that looks like obedience, unless something happens on the inside, unless something is ultimately changed inside of us, that outward behavior is just further proof of our defiance. So pray with me as we dig into our text this morning and look at maybe how we get through that defiance to the heart. Holy Spirit, you're here. You're here. We have come to this place to worship, to be reminded, to proclaim, ultimately to be transformed. We are gathered here, regathered here in fellowship, in worship around this table, to be sent back out into the world as agents of reconciliation, as witnesses to your kingdom, as proclaimers of your reign, Jesus. But there is still yet work to be done on my heart, on our hearts. So we submit ourselves to your spirit to teach us through your word so that we can be like your son, Jesus. Abba, do these things, we ask, in the name of that son, Jesus. Amen. So this week we dive into a story that is cinematic in scope. It illustrates the desperate actions of three characters with defiant hearts. One who defies the word, one who is defiant in his proclamation of it, a God who is defiant in showing love and mercy. And underneath it, underneath it are the people, the people desperate for something real, desperate for salvation physical, yes, but also salvation spiritual within them and their communities. And as I said, this text is cinematic in nature, so we're going to use our active gospel imaginations today. We're going to engage our minds, we're going to engage that visual, that visual element, that creative element to put ourselves in the story. Will you do that with me this morning? 
So here's the first scene. Scene one opens on a cold and barren cell. We see a haggard and obviously troubled man, aged beyond his years by mistreatment, rejection, and driven by an inescapable calling. A calling he has often begged to be relieved from, a calling that has cost him pretty much everything. He calls his assistant in to help him write a letter that captures on paper the prophecy that has landed him on the outs. He may be cut off in person from proclaiming his message, but he will find other ways to make this message known. Into that scene, these words are spoken. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah in the fourth year that Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, was ruling over Judah. Get a scroll. Write on it everything I have told you to say about Israel, Judah, and all the other nations since I began to speak to you in the reign of Josiah until now. It seems that this week's lesson is brought to you by the letter J with this. And in order to separate all the characters, let's do a little bit of character study here. First of all, we need to know the author, Jeremiah. Who is this? lone figure calling his secretary to write these prophecies, not just one, but all that was given to him since he began his ministry, some at this point, 30, 35 years earlier. This is towards the end of his ministry. We might know more about Jeremiah, actually, than any other prophet. The book that contains his name in our Bible is a proto-autobiography of sorts. He was born to a priestly family, called into ministry five years after the great revival of King Josiah had started, and he would continue on his ministry through four subsequent kings. These were tumultuous times in the history, as the people of Judah were, in a way, being given a last chance in the revival. There was this brief moment that it seemed like maybe they would escape Maybe they would finally be reestablished. Maybe after this history, this long history of ups and downs since the establishment of the kingdom under King David might finally again flourish in peace. Its its borders might be again, once again, established all the way in the north. And they might live into that imagination of being a people set apart for God whose hearts were wholly committed to him. These dreams were not to be realized. As a fact, when this was written, Babylon was emerging as the dominant world power and would eventually conquer all the lands of Judah and Israel and carry the people into captivity. Jeremiah would live through it all, see it all, prophesy and lament, suffer and comfort through it all. And in the end, Jeremiah would die in exile with his people. Jeremiah is the author of the letter, but he's writing it to the people. It ultimately is going to fall into the hands of one Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was Josiah's son, the second king, to rule after his father and after his, after his brother was carried off into captivity. Jehoiakim was strong-willed and wicked. He persecuted Jeremiah to no end. 
And then we have Josiah, who we've mentioned. Josiah is one of, among the handful of kings of Israel and Judah who is remembered as a good king, a righteous king, which is all the more incredible when you consider that he was crowned king at eight years old. Which eight-year-old among our group here do we want to crown as king to rule? And yet God had mercy, and Josiah was a good king. He, he restored the worship of God in the temple. He had the temples and the places of worship to the idols and the pagans destroyed. And in this brief moment, there was hope given that maybe the people's destiny would be fulfilled. However, ultimately, he was killed in battle after some serious political miscalculations. And the country fell back into the hands of, his, of the wicked kings, many of whom were his sons. So into this context, in this scene, this is who are writing the letters. These, these are who are receiving the letters. God says this, Perhaps when the people of Judah hear all about the disaster I intend to bring upon them, they will all stop doing the evil things they have been doing. If they do, I will forgive their sins and the wicked things they have done. Here is the plaintive cry of Jeremiah. Of all the true prophets and of the very heart of God, they cry out, don't you see? Don't you see where your sin is leading you? Don't you see that it is costing you everything? Don't you see the havoc and hell it inflicts on everything? Own your wickedness and God will step in and do the things only God can do. Forgive and restore. Redeem and reconcile. So Jeremiah summoned Baruch, the son of Neriah, then Jeremiah dictated to Baruch everything the Lord had told him to say, and Baruch wrote it all down on a scroll. Then Jeremiah told Baruch, I am no longer allowed to go in the Lord's temple. Now let's pause and get a handle on who Baruch is here. Baruch was born into a princely family, and yet he traded the potential of a much higher position within society and government to faithfully serve as Jeremiah's secretary, an advocate before the various kings. When Jeremiah was ultimately condemned and had to flee for his life, Baruch was charged and had to flee with him. Baruch remained faithful to the end, going into exile with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's been banned from the temple. He's been banned from the people. He's been cut off because of the truth that he's spoken, because of the messages that he's delivered. The evil kings will not hear the word of the Lord. And yet Jeremiah is determined to fulfill his calling, so he writes the scroll, gives it to his friends, and his friend instructs him to read it. He says this, so go down there. The next time all the people of Judah come from their towns, to fast in the Lord's temple. Read out loud where all of them can hear you what I told you, the Lord said, which you wrote in that scroll. 
Perhaps then they will ask the Lord for mercy. And we'll all stop doing the evil things they have been doing, for the Lord has threatened to bring great anger and wrath against his people. So Baruch, son of Neriah, did exactly what the prophet Jeremiah had told him to do. He read what the Lord had said on the scroll in the temple of the Lord. So here's our second scene. We go from the cell where the scroll is written to the courts of the temple where the people have come. Israel, the the tribes to the north, have already fallen. Things are looking grim. The people in one last religious posturing flood to the temple, fasting and praying for deliverance from the looming threat of the mighty Babylonians. This was not a regular fast. This was not a feast. This was called in a time of emergency that the people have come. The people are looking for hope. Would God speak to them? Would God deliver them again? To them, the scroll of Jeremiah's message is read. And we don't know exactly what was on that scroll. We don't have the exact words that were written. Many think that they are the words that we will consider in just a moment. And no doubt they will be characterized by what we are coming to come to read. What we do know is that the scroll was read. Every word of it. Not only that, But the message reached the ears of the king. And that's where our scene takes us now. So we move from the quiet cell of Jeremiah, excluded off on the sidelines to the courts of the temple, teeming with people now up into the winter quarters of the king. And let's not be... deficient in our imagination here. Let's see the break that is given, the people coming together to try somehow maybe to hear from the Lord, to seek the Lord. And then you have the solitary figure of Jehoiakim surrounded by his cronies, sitting huddled around a fire. He broods as he understands he is powerless to mount any effective political response to the threat on his borders. He refuses to go down and humble himself with the people. He refuses to take the role of leadership which his his father, Josiah, had done, identifying with the people, submitting himself to God and to the prophets, proclaiming the worship of the true God. Instead, he sits and tries to cut political deals. He sits and tries to move the levers of political machinations so that he can somehow retain his power, retain his privilege, no matter what it cost the people. The king sent Jehudi to get the scroll. He went from it And he went and got it from the room of Elishama, the royal secretary. Then he himself read it to the king and all the officials who were standing around him. Since it was the ninth month of the year, the king was sitting in his winter quarters. A fire was burning in the fire pot in front of him. 
As soon as Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king would cut them off with his knife and throw them into the fire pot. He kept doing this until the whole scroll was burnt up in the fire. Now, let's not be too quick to judge Jehoiakim here. Isn't this devastatingly symbolic action what all of us are capable of when we refuse to hear the word of the Lord or listen to the counsel of the people of God or make room for the Holy Spirit in our hearts? Aren't each one of us capable of cutting and tearing, burning and ignoring, editing and twisting God's words just because we don't want to hear it? Because it threatens our power? Because it threatens our privilege? Because it threatens our position? Make no doubt, Jehoiakim is not the hero of the story. However, how often are we likewise not the hero of the story? The Lord spoke to Jeremiah after Jehoiakim had burned the scroll containing what Jeremiah had spoken to Baruch, had spoken and Baruch had written down. And even though it's not here in the scripture, it's not here in the Hebrew, the original, but you can almost, almost, if you look closely, if you squint, hear the, the sigh that precedes the words. Get another scroll and write down on it everything that has been written on the original scroll the King Jehoiakim of Judah burned. <clears throat> Our last scene is the same as the first. Back in the cold exile of Jeremiah, who will not be silenced, who will not relent in the calling he has been given. But these closing images are not the end of the whole story but a snapshot of something larger. We've been studying this redemptive thread that runs through the Old Testament, and here we get a major development in the story, an image of what is being woven together through the stories and covenants, miracles and messages suddenly becomes clear, and we can't miss this part, y'all. We've been weaving these threads together. We've been hearing these stories. We've been watching, walking along with the people. And now we get to flip this over a bit and see what is being woven together. What is that message then that Jeremiah had preached in the temple that day? That he wrote not once but twice we don't know for sure, but we can be confident that one of his messages, maybe the summation of all of his messages, 
was recorded in chapter 31. And that's where we look now. Jeremiah 31, verses 29 through 34. When that time comes, people no longer will say, the parents have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth have grown numb. Rather, each person will die for his own sins. The teeth of the person who eats the sour grapes will themselves grow numb. And listen, hear it, hear it, hear it, Grace Church. Indeed, a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt, for they violated that covenant, even though I was like a faithful husband to them, says the Lord. But I will make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel after I plant them back in the land, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God and they will be my people. People will no longer need to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me. For all of them, from the least important to the most important, will know me, says the Lord. I will forgive their sins and will no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. There seems to be a squirrel in the system. We got another mic. So. If you have followed along in the last few months, you have seen an Ark of Covenants, not the Ark of the Covenant, but a narrative Ark of the Covenants that took us from Abraham to Moses to David, one that God promised to fulfill, one that God was promised and relentless in his attempts to reconcile the people. We see an endlessly creative God using everything imaginable to try to reconcile his people. And here we get the ultimate, the last, the new covenant that is foreshadowed that will be fulfilled in Jesus. This visiting the sins and teaching children and neighbors. This represents a major shift in our understanding and the people's engagement from God, with God. Up until now, it has been centered in the temple. It has been mediated by priests. It has been shown forth in signs and wonders. Now it becomes intimately personal with this. As we were preparing this, James Covington made the comment, he said this week, he said, God seems to be saying you can't obey. The only way to fix this is for me to write it on your hearts in a way that he will take over. There are two models of God relating to his people and we are transitioning between those models with this week. 
And there are two ways that we understood these and received these that ultimately prohibit us, ultimately, from loving and obeying God or receiving it and living into that. There is the model of threat and rejection of being inadequate. And there is the model of covenant where we are not being rejected but reconciled and being transformed. And all these portend what Paul would talk about in Galatians when he says, I will put you have as new believers, we the church have been given the spirit of adoption, which calls out Abba, Father. It all starts to come to voice, starts to come to fruit here. How we perceive How we perceive why we respond to God determines everything. There's either moralistic ordering, threat, bribe, blessing, cursing, competition, or there is relational flourishing. The call to life from death that results in deep connection. Let me say that again. Are we obeying as the people once thought out of moralistic ordering? Somehow to fulfill some obligation to earn God's love? To secure our future? Or are we responding from relational flourishing? Understanding what God has already done. Receiving into each and every heart the love which God has shown. And therefore living From that, this is the choice, and this is the destiny that is given to us in the new covenant. We see for weeks now how God has repeatedly reached out to us. In the stories from the beginning, from Adam and Eve, all through the stories we have read, God has been relentlessly creative. Arks, bushes that burn but don't, stone tablets, giant fish, angels with hot coals. And now letters from prophets. He has been relentlessly creative, yet at the same time maddeningly redundant in his message. His love for us. His faithfulness to us. That is the drumbeat message that comes through every significant sign, wonder, covenant, and promise. We see through these stories that God is continually closing the distance that was created. Evermore, God is moving closer, moving closer, moving Closer. And yet, in the midst of this, living with this tension, it's not necessarily a, mad, a bad thing. I ask myself the question Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why didn't God just send Jesus to Adam and Eve? Have you ever stopped to consider that? 
wouldn't it have been so much simpler? Wouldn't it have been so much easier right from the start just to send Jesus into the garden or outside of the garden? Have you ever wondered why? I mean, if he was going to do that eventually, why not then? I don't know the answer. Ultimately, I can't tell you why. Other than this, our name is Israel. Our name means those who wrestle with God. There is something that is essentially formative in us. There is something I believe that is absolutely necessary that we can only arrive at when we struggle, when we wrestle. The call to follow Jesus is not a call to end effort. We say this a lot at Grace. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. In fact, many of, much of the effort that we give will only increase as we follow Jesus. But there is something essential in that wrestling that we have to do, that we have to come to. And I believe that's a huge part of the testimony of the Old Testament, is that necessary wrestling with God to finally come to the place of shalom, to finally come to the place of peace, of rest with that. There is a certain degree also, not just in the testimony of the Old Testament, but in our personal lives that is necessary for us to wrestle. It's necessary for us to grow, to change, and to be transformed and we have to embrace that. That wrestling all centers around one essential question. Is love the basis for your being? Is God's love the basis for your being? The motivation for your heart and actions, the root of all your relationships? To put another way, are you still trying to work for God's love? Or are you living from it? The promise of the new covenant is that we will be able to live from God's love. That we will know it in a personal way. We will know that love. Each one of us. Every one of us, from the highest to the lowest, we will experience the love in our of God in our lives in such a way that it becomes the basis for everything that we do and everything that we are. And yet, how often do I do I still act as if I have something to earn? is I have some debt 
that I am qualified or capable of repaying. And when we act from that sense of earning, it is disastrous in its effect. It taints every relationship. It brings disease and death and destruction. Competition and control. Manipulations and machinations of every kind. We must reject that, Grace Church. We must be people who live from God's love, not for it. We all have a choice. It is the choice that is put before us as individuals and as a community. As we head into this week of Thanksgiving, I want to ask you, where are your hearts? Where is your heart? Will you do that this week? Not just the immediate answer now, but would you meditate on that this week? Would you ask God to reveal your heart and put the knife down? Don't ignore or discard the word that comes but receive it? Are we going to be like Jehoiakim who takes that word and burns it up? Or are we going to be like the people Jeremiah prophesies who takes the word and lets it burn in our hearts? Who are we going to be? Grace Church. Who are you going to be? Who am I going to be? That's the question, along with the promise of these words. That place where we practice living from the love of God and not for it is at this table. And Ike, if you want to bring the team up to continue in our worship, I want to ask you as you approach this table, and our table is open to all who are seeking Jesus. We don't dismiss by rows. There's no qualification that you have other than you approach humbly and at the invitation of Jesus. Receive his love. Hold the elements in your hand and consider what they mean. Consider the love that is expressed in these elements. Take them into your body. Taste them. Experience them. Knowing that the love of God is in them. And then live from that place. Thank you for being here this morning.